This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. Within the cult of William Branham, there is a very strange sensation that comes over the believer with just the thought of or with the sport of hunting. Even with the non-wilderness types, the sport seems to be just calling out to every male member of the cult an unnatural fondness of nature. While being programmed with these cult teachings, all of this seemed very normal. But having been through deprogramming by constant prayer and reading of the scripture, I'm starting to realize that this affection for the sport of hunting is quite unusual. Not everyone is intended to be a hunter. But with closer, close examination, you'll quickly find that Branham's sporting hobbies, <laughs> when tied to his personal history and with his cult theology, is extremely odd. Whatever Branham was hiding from in his past is also tied to his many hunting trips. In some of Branham's conflicting life stories, he describes this life of poverty where his father passed away. And Branham says that he was the sole provider for his family, trapping and hunting to support his poor mother and all of his siblings. And these poverty stories are in question due to other conflicting stories and estimations of his wealth. But the stories of fatherless life in Kentucky have been proven a lie. According to the U.S. Census records, William Branham moved to New Albany, Indiana around age three. And I sincerely doubt that any one of you would argue that William Branham hunted and supported his family before age three. He would likely have rather used the stock of the rifle as a teething object, but not to put it in his arm and to kill another animal. And hunting would have been very uncomfortable with a nasty diaper. And even the headquarters admits that Branham's father died long after they moved to Indiana. So headquarters admittedly calls William Branham a liar. Jeffersonville, Indiana 
was well known during the day for casinos and gambling halls and liquor parties and dog races. It did not attract hunters. <laughs> it attracted the likes of Al Capone and John Dillinger. The first time that William Branham mentions hunting on recorded tape is in 1950. He's preaching to an audience in Little Rock, Arkansas, which would have included hunters, and he was appealing to their interest. But back home in Jeffersonville, it's very strange. The first time that William Branham ever uses the word hunt, the very first time, is in 1954. It's a sermon entitled, The Invasion of the United States. That's supposedly 21 years after the beginning of his ministry. Before 1954, William Branham's hunting exaggerations are all but non-existent. At that point, at that point in time, he was nothing more than just a preacher. He was not this great Gandhi that sat in the wilderness to gain spiritual enlightenment. In fact, he claims that his hunting first started in New York, New York State. In 1951, a sermon entitled Expectation in New York City, he says this. He says, I've had many good partners in my life, good hunting partners. I like to go hunt, to go hunting. <laughs> New York State's where I was initiated. I still love those Adirondack Mountains above any place I've ever seen in my life, the Adirondack Mountains. So, was he really introduced to hunting in New York State, or did he crawl around in diapers in Kentucky with a rifle strapped to his onesie? In William Branham's ministry, hunting fables, many hunting fables are given. Story after story after story of how he prophesied antlers would be a certain size or how he'd get his great bear or the unfulfilled prophecy of the second bear, speaking squirrels into existence and more. And I use the word fables because we can't factually say that these things did or did not happen. They're fables. Whether or not they did or did not happen is not the point of this particular study. In 1939, D. Dwight Davis wrote a book entitled, The Opossum, the Prophet Without Honor. And in this story, Davis takes sympathy for an opossum, and he nurtures it back to health, and then he compares this animal to society. Is this where William Branham got his mother possum story? Where he takes an opossum lying on the doorsteps for a couple days and uses it to promote divine healing? We may never know. William Branham was not the first prophet to influence his followers with myths of hunting and wilderness stories. And I'm, when I say prophet, I'm talking about false prophet. He was not the first, nor will he be the last. In fact, the prophet Muhammad did the same exact thing. Islam teaches a story of the deer and the prophet, in which the deer is stuck, trapped in a hunter's trap. When the prophet Muhammad passed by this poor deer, the deer spoke to him. It was a great spiritual thing. He felt sympathy for the deer, and he released the animal. And in this animal's release, the story made the hunter a believer of Islam. It converted the hunter in this story. Buddha, 
He gives many wilderness stories, one of which sounds awfully familiar. A tiny quail who had feet and wings, but yet did not yet know how to fly. <laughs> there are other stories that Buddha gives of deer, of dogs, of bulls, and more, each capturing the hearts of the followers of Buddha through nature. More specifically, American Indians tell a great many stories of God's connection to nature and man's enlightenment through the animal kingdom. To the American Indian, nature itself is their Bible. But William Branham took the Native American viewpoint and said that nature was his first Bible. Nature is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nature does not tell us that Christ came to die for all sin, that he was buried and that he rose again after three days. Nature just simply shows us the beauty of God's creation. Well, William Branham said, beauty's of the devil. <laughs> Nature shows us that beauty is God's creation. So why does William Branham focus so strongly on hunting fables during the latter part of his ministry? There are some cult followers that place so much value on these myths that they even compare these myths to the Word of God. So many non-wilderness types that force themselves to endure nature so that they can be like the little man on the mountain. It's very interesting when you consider the places that Branham went to hunt and the costs associated with them. While most followers any follower, practically, will tell you that he lived this humble, simple life. Those same people have never studied the cost of an overseas hunting trip. Just leaving work for a few weeks would break most budgets. But Branham would need to spend money on immunizations, on passports and traveling expenses, on hunting passes and lodging and more. Some of these trips would cost more than a full one to two year salary for many of these people who are trapped in the cult. And Branham frequently spent his tape money on these trips. There is only twice that William Branham mentions it, but it is very interesting that a man from the hills of Kentucky spent so much time near the Mexican border. 1950, William Branham praises those people that are near the border. He says, Now down in Mexico, or down near the border, among your people, I never seen a Spanish person come to the platform, but what was perfectly healed. Wow, they're spiritual people down there. He says, They're humble. They haven't got much of this world's goods, but they believe God. It's 1950-08-13, God revealing himself to his people. Because the story mystery cloud, the one that is on the, the papers and on the books and on all of this material, this Thor missile explosion, because this story changed so much over time, many people think that this fabricated story begins in northern Arizona, where the cloud actually appeared. But that is not the case. When William Branham first describes the spiritual event in the wilderness, like Buddha would have, there is no cloud mentioned. It is a blast, and it's near Mexico. 1963, the seventh seal, remember the, these are the seals, what he's preaching after he goes to Arizona. He says, now have you noticed the mysterious parts of this week? 
That's what it has been. It's not been a human being, a man. It's been the angels of the Lord. N notice, there's witnesses of three sitting in here. Now, at that time, there's only three. It grows to 15 and then hundreds. He says, there's witnesses of three sitting in here that a week ago, he says, a little over a week ago, I was way back in the mountains nearly to Mexico. Think of where the spiritual cloud happened. Think of where it passed over the northern border. It came directly from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California all across the state of Arizona at the top, not near the border. He says, there I was near the Mexican border. He says, I was way back in the mountains of Mexico with two brethren that's sitting here picking a cuckle burr or sand burrs off my trouser leg, and then, boom, a blast went off. Looked like it shook the mountains down. That's right. I never told my brethren, but they noticed a difference. He said to me, now be ready, go east. Now, obviously, this story changed over time. And this change from this he said to me, go east, to the angels came down from the heavens through this cloud and said to me, go east. But that's not how it started. And the blast itself is also very, very interesting. Because William Branham himself was not unfamiliar to dynamite. <laughs> Think of it. He says this in 1957. He says, you know, out in Arizona, we used to prospect. And we'd get into a suitable piece looking piece of ground, Mr. McNally and myself. So we got two people here in the story, Branham and Mr. McNally. And we would see a place where it looked like in the ditches where a little drain they used to call washes. And I'd he'd get me down, make me rub the sand, and whew, he'd blow it, and he'd rub, and then whew, he'd blow it. And I wondered why he did that. Come to find out, when you're blowing sand, it light and all lead is lighter than gold. Yada, yada, yada. It goes on all the way down to say, So then we get the picks and so forth, dug up the hill, almost trying to find this gold, bore holes in the ground to dig them out, set dynamite. <laughs> Blow it down. Keep on blowing the shafts down till we found the main vein. Now that's what we call prospecting. So, we got a humble little minister who likes to hunt, who doesn't like money. What does he need with gold? <laughs> it's crazy why William Branham was so interested in the Mexican border that led him to the United States. It's a mystery that is still being studied. And with some very, very shocking and surprising information coming forth. But the stories themselves, the hunting stories are nothing more than myths. They're spiritual stories with the sole intent purpose of capturing itching ears. There were no scribes to write the prophecies down. There were no scribes like there were in the days of the Old Testament prophets. While in the Old Testament, scribes kept record to prove that Yahweh was God. When Yahweh spoke, they wrote it down, and if it came to pass, it glorified Yahweh. The spiritual stories that these cult and other false religious leaders serve only have one purpose, and that is to show how they are spiritual, not how God is great. Two completely different things. 
The stories have absolutely nothing to do with God, nor do they tell others of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, nor do they spread the gospel, the good news that Christ died, rose from the grave, and we can rise with him. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warned Timothy this. He said that these false, false teachers would rise, and specifically, specifically that they would capture itching ears with their myths and their spiritual stories. Paul writes and gives instruction of one thing. If you read the chapter, it says this. Paul writes, preach the word. Paul does not instruct Timothy to tell of the great and mighty signs and wonders that would have definitely surrounded the apostles. There was only one subject matter, one thing that was important, the word. Paul says, preach the word. He does not say, preach the antlers. <laughs> Paul continues, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and with careful instruction. Now, this is a stark contrast between what Paul just instructed and how cult pastors preach. Paul says to correct and to rebuke, which cult ministers do, often during the same sentence. But Paul also says to encourage. There must be balance. There must be balance in your preaching, otherwise you're beating the dead horse until it dies, and then you continue beating it every Sunday and Wednesday. How many sermons have you sat through in a crowd full of women with long hair? about how women have long hair and should keep it long. He's beating that dead horse until it's dead. And then he continues to beat it. There was a reason for Paul writing this instruction to Timothy. Men with itching ears would tire from hearing the word of God. Men with itching hearts would tire from preaching the word of God. And they would start to want more. They would ignore the sound doctrine of the scripture, and they would seek to find other spiritual stories. They would seek to find the men on the mountaintops, or the rain dances, or the clouds with the Thor missile thingy. Paul says, for over time, for the time will come when people will not put up with good sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them with a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is exactly what we see in the cult of William Branham. Myths. Nothing more. Men and women who call hunting stories and fishing stories the spoken word or the voice of God. Yet, when asked to prove whether or not these fables happened, they look at you as though you have some sort of demon. They themselves can't support what they believe in. Paul does not tell us that we should simply walk away from them, though, and let them roll around in the mud of their failed prophecies and false teaching. Throughout his ministry, Paul teaches that we should rebuke falsehood exactly what the apologetics are doing with this false cult of William Branham today. 
He says that we should rebuke falsehood and encourage others. Point others to Christ. Paul, throughout his ministry, says that we should encourage others and snatch as many from the fire as possible. His very next words in the chapter is this, But you keep your head in all situations. In other words, keep focused. Don't lose your cool. He says, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all of the duties of your ministry. As Christians, we should ask ourselves, when we see the spiritual blindness of this cult, a blindness that is so strong that they're willing to believe the fictional stories of a man who's running from his past, do we just let them be? Do we just walk away and let them enjoy the heat of the coming fire? Do we not care that they refuse to believe the truth in God's word rather than follow a leader who has proven time and time again to be a serial liar? Do we not care that these people are human beings still in bondage, yet it's a willful bondage that comes directly from the pits of hell? Wouldn't you rather tell them of the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell them that it's not to be filtered by stories of bears or squirrels or possums or deers? Wouldn't you rather show them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation? Keep your heads up. In all situations, God will help you to do the work of an evangelist and do the work that he has called you to do. Be encouraged. Lift others up. God will help you. Oh.